Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. You know what a bro is, listener? A dude. A straight white guy in his late teens or early 20s, or sometimes in his later 20s. Cultural force? Hmm. Depends on who you ask. When it comes to the American beer business, though, bros have always been a super influential demographic for the simple fact that they drink a lot and they're fairly easy to market to. For the back half of the 20th century, selling swill to America's frattiest daddies was fairly simple. You throw them some sports, some chicks, some patriotism, boom, you're moving cases. <laughs> but in the late aughts, as the brotastic light beer category started to slide, bros themselves started to become just a smidge more self-aware. The rising popularity of blogs injected irony into the mainstream discourse and supercharged the demand for what we would later come to think of as snackable, user-generated content. Beer-drinking bros were not exempt from those tectonic social shifts, and as the decade wound down, America's large adult sons became absolutely obsessed with a silly, subversive, sometimes sexist chugging ritual that swept the nation and scandalized Smirnoff's legal team. I'm talking, of course, about icing. The gag, codified as it was on slapdash websites like Bros Icing Bros, was pretty straightforward. You hide a Smirnoff ice for your bro to find, and if he did, he'd have to get down on one knee and chug it. But the cultural and commercial impacts of this flavored malt beverage prank were a little bit more complicated. Joining Taplines today to discuss Icing's indelible legacy is Brandon Winter, the publisher of BroBible.com, which covered the viral phenomenon in real time as the aughts came to a close and has checked in on it every couple years since. It's Smirnoff Ice, it's Bro Bible's Brennan Wennard, it's flavored malt beverages going mainstream for all the wrong reasons. The podcast network is Vine Pears, the show is Tap Lines. We're talking icing and we're talking it right now. Yes, welcome to Tap Lines, Brandon Wennard. I'm glad you're here, buddy. Dude, it's so good to see you again and thank you so much for having me on. See my beautiful face? I don't know. What about your beautiful face, my friend? Look at that beard. Am I hairier than the last time you saw it's me? It's hard to say. I mean, <laughs> I I feel like years have gone by and you look uh you look like the more California version of Tom Hanks and Castaway. You're looking very hirsute, my friend. Yeah, dude, the 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 gray the wolfness is coming out the older I get and <laughs> The grays are coming in too, but so it goes. <laughs> you look very distinguished and we're glad to have you on Tap Lines. Listener, we're in uh, privileged company today. Uh, we're lucky to have joining us for this very important episode, a good good friend of mine, good friend of the show, Brandon Wennard, who's the publisher of BroBible.com. Um, Brandon, where are you joining us from today? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Beautiful, sunny, crisp, and cool right now. Sunny LA. You're out in La La Land. Uh, Brandon, you and I first met many years ago, I think on a press junket with uh, Miller Lite, if I'm not mistaken. We were, we were at the Indy 500 together. Is that right? 
Not the, it wasn't the Indy 500, it was the Brickyard 500, but it wasn't oh, yeah. Indianapolis. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, um, it was the less prestigious one that people don't care as much about or more about. It was hot as hell. Like that's the only thing that, like you know, I really can even remember was that it was hot as hell, and we went to St. Elmo's in Indianapolis. Uh, where we ate dinner with Brad Kozlowski from NASCAR. <laughs> That's right. Wow, man, that feels like a century ago. Uh, we were drinking a lot of Miller Lite on that trip, of course, but today we're here to talk about uh, a different beverage, a malt beverage still, but um, an entirely, I would say, a world away from Miller Lite. I'm talking, of course, about Smirnoff Ice, uh, which is a flavored malt beverage and one that came to... I think American mainstream consciousness, you know, right around the end of the aughts and uh, into 2010 or so, um, due to the practice of icing, which we will be discussing in great detail uh, a little bit later on in this episode. But why don't we just start with a brief uh, uh, discussion of your personal experiences with Smirnoff Ice, Brandon? Do you recall drinking Smirnoff Ice at any point prior to the icing phenomenon? Like, was this a part of your rotation at all when you were in college or, or whatever? A hundred percent not at all. <laughs> like, uh, there's, I feel like there were jokes like about Smirnoff Ice as a, you know, malt beverage. I, I mean, I also came up in college from 2004 to 2008. And mm. uh, I think like, as Smirnoff kind of, it was never, it was never in the rotation at all, other than like the joke, like a beverage that I think we kind of made fun of. Yeah. Um, and not in an endearing way, like in a very like put downish, like who's drinking the antifreeze type of like way, you know? Right. Totally. My experience with it was almost exactly what you've described as well, right? Like I was vaguely aware of this category, which like you'll sometimes hear referred to as like Alco Pops, you know, they're, they're malt beverages that are flavored rather than brewed like a beer or, or, you know, fermented, you know, like a wine. Obviously they have alcohol content, but they're mostly drawing on more accessible soda-like, you know, flavors and profiles. When we first sort of started, or when I first started coming more in contact with Smirnoff, it was, you know, kind of in those late aughts. And it was because of the practice that we're here to discuss the, you know, bros icing bros, or just icing is how most people now refer to it as. What about you, man? Like, do you remember the first time you saw someone getting ice? Do you remember the first time Smirnoff ice started showing up at parties? Like, when did this enter, you know, sort of your drinking career or your drinking consciousness? So I can't say that I remember a like IRL moment where somebody like, you know, iced somebody and uh, it, you know, blew my mind or something like that. Right. The whole party goes nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think I have to take like a little bit of like an objective step back on that just because of where Bro Bible was at the time. And how we started fielding the icing phenomena. And that was kind of the moment where it clicked to me that icing was, as we say, going viral. And uh, I do remember the first one that we received, though. This is at Bro Bible. This is at Bro Bible. Yeah. And this is what I think probably deserves a lot of credit for being like the very first 
time the bros i seen bros like phenomenon really took off right. it was at a i don't remember this specific college uh but it was at a one of the like small like uh nezcac schools in new england um i want to say like maybe bates or something like that or like i think it might have been uh st lawrence maybe st lawrence that sounds that right, sound right? Yeah, 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 yeah that sounds right one of the small liberal arts schools in like you know new york new england Someone sent in a picture of them at graduation and it was like an early May, like maybe even it was like an early Mayish graduation um, where they were walking across the stage and uh, they were like given an ice. And like, I don't know if like it looked like it was from the angle of like their parents took a picture of them like doing it. And, you know, the dean of the school like looked kind of mortified um and you know other people <laughs> were kind of shocked by what it was what it, whatever was happening and uh that to me being sent to bro bible at the time was the thing that kind of crystallized about how like random and funny like the whole icing phenomenon is and what it sort of is and uh it's a spread like wildfire from that moment. That one, like, I'm pretty sure that was the first one that we received. And I'm pretty sure that was the first one that, like, as a piece of media, caused it to really go viral. That's such an important component of this. And we're going to talk more about, like, the role of media in producing the icing phenomenon and reproducing it out. Because, I mean, when we talk about timeline here, what are we, th- what are we talking about? Like 2008 or so? 2009? Yeah, 2000 uh well, that would have been early. That would have been 2010. Okay. Um it was I don't really know if like the phenomenon mode even started in 2009. I think what it what had happened was it was starting in the spring semester of 2010 and when it like at these little like, you know, liberal arts colleges in New England, uh, you know, the Northeast, I'm pretty sure that the way of thinking about it would be like, okay, this was a weird, like funny niche college phenomena that hadn't jumped into the internet sphere yet. It was something that people were doing like, you know, with like the sports houses they lived in, maybe like a lacrosse house or like a fraternity, like, or something like that. Right. I don't think it's fair to just say it was a fraternity thing. I think also like the idea of like collegiate sports houses also was an important incubator to it at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think what happened was it made the jump. The bros, I see bros phenomenon made the jump in late spring around like graduation time to becoming this kind of cultural thing. Yeah. Um, And that's like early days virality. Yeah. And, and blogs were driving a lot of that virality, obviously bro Bible being one of them where you guys were, I mean, and this was basically right on the advent of Instagram. Twitter is only a few years old. Smartphones in, or at least iPhones are in their relative infancy. They haven't reached ubiquity. People don't have access to video. So a lot of the media that we're talking about was photos, right? Like you you would get like cool photos from a party and you would fucking like post them, you know? Yeah, that was, no, that was in a hundred percent. It was sent from, and I remember, I like, you know, I remember a lot of the readers that were sending us those 
were like sent from my BlackBerry style like email. Right, tags, right. right. <laughs> BB, yeah, everyone had BBM and was obsessed BBM, with it, and then yeah. everyone started getting iPhones. Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Like, and so I think that is like an interesting part of why Bros. I see Bros. Kind of was this important phenomenon. The idea of virality had existed, of course, but there was a confluence of all these technologies coming together at the same point in time too. Technology, media technologies. With like Facebook, especially Facebook was yep. probably the biggest like distribution point at the time, but pages was still in its very, very early infancy. And then you also have the consumer technologies too, uh, with just being able to capture that and also being able to distribute it. And, you know, like we mentioned, like, you know, Blackberry and iPhone and everything else like that at the time was a important factor in it. That's such a fascinating, confluence is the right way to put it. And Smirnoff Ice is in the middle of that confluence for better or worse. And, you know, this was like a middle of the road, normal brand that, you know, was a total also ran in terms of mainstream conversation. And then this phenomenon starts picking up, as you said, probably coming from the Northeast. Some contemporary ports put it uh, as starting at the College of Charleston. Although you and I have done Brandon and I have discussed this many times, by the way, listener. So we've done some offline research and we believe uh, uh, using Brandon's, you know, uh, firsthand access to a lot of these primary documents, Brandon uh, and I have sort of tracked back and decided that College of Charleston is probably a place that it ended up early on and appeared, you know, early on, but probably wasn't started there. Um, and in my previous life pr- prior to Vine Pair, I was working at the local paper in Charleston, South Carolina, and tried to track down some of the the principles of the uh, of some of the contemporary reporting. And though none of them would speak to me on the record, that is more or less corroborated by what they described. So in terms of where icing started, we do think that it came out of the Northeast and it and it's happening in the late aughts. I think we should pause here. I, you know, I, I'm assuming that most of our listeners here at Taplines already sort of understand what the process of icing is. It's very much um, in the in the water, so to speak, or, or in the general consciousness. Uh, you know, we're going on 13 years of this practice. But for those few that that don't or maybe need a refresher, Brandon, I thought it would be useful for us to just sort of go through the step by step or the major tenets of of what the process of icing actually is. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think like the, you know, the important thing about like icing is that it's built on comedic timing. You know, the goal of what a proper icing is, is the, the, the element of surprise, uh, the element of the unexpected, and then, you know, a, a hearty laugh usually as a group. Um, So, so icing, is when someone presents the Smirnoff ice to somebody else in whatever kind of delivery method possible that seems funny or unique to the situation uh, at, at the time. And then the person has to take a knee, which is a very crucial part of a proper icing. The person then has to take a knee and chug said smeared off ice uh at the moment that it's delivered no matter where you are what you're doing this idea is that like the party stops the record scratches you know metaphorically speaking and you have to chug this flavored malt beverage that again as we said earlier in the episode this is not 
the typical choice of beverage for for many people, right? There, there's a, certainly people who drink Smirnoff Ice, but uh, the joke, because that's I, I love that you call that out. Like comedic timing is important because this is ultimately a prank. This is a joke. You'll hear it referred to as a drinking game once the mainstream media picks it up, and I think that's a mischaracterization um, because, like, I think this falls much more in the bucket of sort of spoof or prank than it does, uh, uh, you know, like game or sort of like chugging contest. Right. But, but the joke is that like, all right, like you may be at graduation up at, at, uh, you know, St. Lawrence, you may be at your wedding, you may be, you know, at in line at the DMV, et cetera, et cetera. So like there's the, 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 the joke, the setup of the joke is handing someone a Smirnoff ice or hiding that in their, their book bag or, you know, like tucking it in the center console of their vehicle that they hopefully aren't driving while drinking a Smirnoff ice. Um, and then they discover it or they, you know, they receive it and they realize like, Oh man, I have to, I have to chug this. Is there any way, Brandon, I think there's a way to block. There's one way to get out of chugging the Smirnoff ice. Right. And that's, is it to have your own Smirnoff ice? Yes, if you have your own Smirnoff ice. Yeah, if you're holding one, you don't have to. You don't have to. But uh, it's like, that's such a pro-level move. <laughs> <laughs> right. The idea of like wander, yeah, just like going through your life in, with like cargo shorts on and like one of the pockets has just like a big Smirnoff ice. <laughs> that was like the original game, though, I think. And that... And you can kind of envision how a group of like friends or like I said, a sports house or something like that would be doing this in a college campus. Absolutely. Like I know it's a it's a little bit harder, I think, for people to and which actually I think makes it funnier. But like it's harder for people to envision the game of icing each other outside of this kind of controlled like, you know, environment of a campus where like people are walking around and interacting with each other all day and you never really know who you're running into, but it's a relatively small group of like, you know, of people, um, if you will. Totally. And it's like, it, 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 I think part of the reason that we will see it spread from 2010 onward and really inject itself into the mainstream besides the media factor that we've discussed and we'll continue to discuss over the course of the episode, um, is also the idea that like there is just sort of this group um, sort of camaraderie that can be built around this cat and mouse game that you play uh, in theory. Now, again, what it winds up becoming, I think, is really much more of these sort of jokes in a vacuum than it is sort of a group of, of buddies on a college campus who all live together and are all hanging out all the time. And, and that's sort of like an ongoing game. It becomes much less of that, but you can understand the appeal, right? Like there's, there's something like sort of innate and fun about it. And, and Smirnoff ice is at its center. Did you, do you remember if anyone ever played, I can't remember. And I was going back and researching this episode. No one ever really played with anything else, right? Like Mike's hard lemonade was never a substitute. Like, Bacardi Breeze, no. none of those were ever a substitute, right? I think like what happened, what one of the things that did start happening is that people started to joke about, or I, I don't want to say joke isn't the right word, but people started to integrate like different flavors of Smirnoff Ice yeah, yeah, as yeah. a, like, as a, I reluctantly call it like a pain point, but as like a, <laughs> as a, as a type of like way of, you know, inflicting torture in the prank like right. where you know as people started doing it over the course of a couple of months they'd be like wow i really like 
oh, you're making me drink the grape one, like, or like, oh, like, you know, oh, I don't mind taking a pineapple, like, spirit of ice, <laughs> like, right. So, like, flavors became kind of a part of what icing became, and I think that lined up with how Diageo was uh, introducing like Smirnoff completely (laughs) unintentionally like introducing Smirnoff ice flavors at the time where like this game is going on and they just released like three new flavors of Smirnoff ice as a product release and uh they're (laughs) it's kind of you know given being being used in jest as a uh you know it's almost being weaponized if you will yeah Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, oh, cool. Like, they just launched a black cherry. Like, let's go ruin our buddy's life with this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it, exactly. That was, the, that was the entire, like, gist was that, like, the new the new product was, you know, used as a device in that friendship. <laughs> That's that's a really funny way to think about it. And, and that does ring true, right? It's like there was – and I think it's also important to remember at this time, like, there's no monoculture around this. So it's still it's still spreading sort of – you know, with the media that we're describing, it's it's a lot, a lot of it's being sort of reproduced through blogs, some through social media. But like, I think now to like a contemporary analog of this might be that like no one likes the grapefruit white cloth flavor, right? Like that is sort of like the least favorite for people in the variety pack. And this is a known thing. And it's a joke that sort of entered the mainstream consciousness on Twitter, on Instagram. This was not the case 13 years ago, there was no such sort of shared like knowledge around that or shared reality around something as granular as like Smirnoff ice, like flavor releases. So there was still element of, uh, uh, surprise and excitement as they started rolling these new flavors out because you would go to the store, you would pick up beer that you actually wanted to drink for the party. And then you would, oh, should we get a six pack of Smirnoff Ice? Oh, look, they have like new flavors. This is going to be great, right? Like, so like there was still this like element of, I think like retail wonder, you know, that I think we've lost a lot of now that everyone knows product releases as soon as they hit because they go viral immediately. And, and, you know, this information is much more accessible. It's part of a comms strategy. Like it's very deliberate, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, that's, that's exactly right. I think, what about like variations on it? I the the thing I remember the most about this in 2010 or so because I was I graduated college in 2010 and I remember it like hitting campus hard at the University of Virginia. Yeah. People all of a sudden were doing it all the time. And the thing I remember more than like there was no like technique to it, so to speak. That's not really the right word, but like there was this sort of sense of like sort of one-upsmanship in terms of the elaborateness of the hiding of the Smirnoff ice bottle, right? Like there was this idea that like, all right, if your friend, you know, uh, buries it in the yard and then, uh, you know, sort of tricks you into digging it up, right? Like the next time you've got to sort of hide it in like a, a crawl space under his floorboards. And then like, he has to like stumble across it when he's like looking for a Frisbee or something. Like there's this idea of like, how do we not only, continue the back and forth, the the dialogue such as it is of icing one another, but 
also do it in uh, uh, upwardly spiraling level of complexity because like that makes it even funnier. Does that track for you? Do you remember that type uh, of thing? A hundred percent because yeah. it, you know, at first it was like, Hey, you're sitting around with your like friends. Uh, you're watching, you're watching the game. I'm painting like a aughts beer commercial. You're sitting around with right. your boys watching the game <laughs> and you know, you say, Hey, get me a beer. Or like someone says, hey, anybody want a beer? And someone goes to the fridge, comes back with a spirit off ice. Like that's the right. like original like, you know, uh, gist of the prank. But as things evolved, the, and especially as the media elements of it too like evolved, the, the complexity was exactly what you said. It was kind of an Easter egg hunt on that element of surprise. The one that yes. I really remember that stuck out that we – I'm pretty sure somebody sent it to us was that somebody puts like cellophane over a toilet and then put the toilet seat down like and had a and had like a speared off ice like when they put the toilet seat down um, and you open the lid there would be the person would open the lid the speared off ice would be there like you know, in the cellophane on the toilet. Like, <laughs> like be, so the seat of the toilet is down. So that creates enough space between the cellophane and the cover of the toilet. Yeah. So exactly. right? I mean, this is, this is the sort of thing that like only, you know, like early twenties men with like nothing to do besides like this type of elaborate bullshit. This is the only, this is where this comes from. Like idle hands are the devil's work. Idle minds like produce icing, you know, <laughs> there were like, there were some insane like engineering feats that I think we're going into this. Another one that I remember, and this kind of like has this like Looney Tunes, like wildy coyote, like, you know, roadrunner style, like yeah, yeah. Uh, tactics. There was one where someone they tied like a string around the around like the bottleneck and uh, they were in a house where there was like a upper like atrium or deck, a terrace. Type, atrium yeah, yeah. type of thing. Yeah, and they were and so they just like slowly lowered the <laughs> the bottle <laughs> in front of yeah, like some Home Alone shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. And like you know, it's 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 like, and you can just you can just imagine how funny that is in real life when you're it's a group of like eight guys and somebody is just doing this to get them wrecked. Right. There's the joke, which is the smearing off ice, and that's the punchline. And then there's the meta joke of, like, someone spent a lot of time and effort to, like, set up this arrangement, which is funny in, in its own right, right? Like, there's this level of elaborate dedication to, like, sort of artifice that means nothing, right? And that's – I remember participating in those types of pranks when I was in college. Like, you get – I think, like, it's an – I think it's mostly an instinctual sort of, like – the gag is is very sort of – easy to grasp even if it's not that easy to describe because like there's just something very very funny about that behavior right exactly like and it's again it's all about timing it's all about the gist of like how to line something up like like just i don't know it's just being goofy at the end of the yeah day. totally but and this is like there's there's some confluence with like broader media tropes that are going on at this time right like the idea of prank videos on YouTube, that was huge, right? Like that whole genre of like sort of before it got into like more mean spirited pranks, there was just like a lot of like goofiness on YouTube and like 
this idea of like setting up sort of Rube Goldbergian devices that could do like simple household tasks or whatever. Like there's a whole sort of subgenre of that type of video that existed on YouTube and prior to that on Ebaum's World and wherever. I think we should talk about Bros Icing Bros. That's where I'm headed. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what Bros Icing Bros is. I'm glad you brought that up. So like Bros Icing Bros was not a part of Bro Bible uh, at all. Um, it was actually a Tumblr. I'm pretty sure it was a Tumblr powered like blog, which, yep. um, you know, back in that era of media, Tumblr was like the way for photos and visual content to really go viral. Yep. That's like famously where shit my dad says, well, shit my dad says started as a Twitter, but like that style of like one off like thing concept yep. would live really, really well on Tumblr. We actually had a Tumblr called that we started in 2010 as well, around the same time, uh, called uh, My Dad is a Bro, where it was just like dads. Which was huge. Yeah, pe- I, we, yeah, I remember like, that. We a, yeah, yeah, we got a book deal for Simon Suster on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was also the media eras. This was the same media era where like uh, you could just like launch a blog and if it was mildly popular, someone would bang down your door from one of the major publishers and be like, Crazy. here's $200,000. <laughs> ah, like write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was uh, – but, but like Bros I See Bros though was in that same vein. Like there were a lot of things that were starting like that in that time and it became a bit of the – in addition to how we kind of talked to it on Broba, we were also doing other things. It wasn't like our one, one right. thing. It was just time. like a side project. It was yeah, a side yeah. thing, yeah. right, that we you know were kind of amplifying the narrative around. Um, Bros I See Bros though was the, was the place where these things were really getting collected as the center of the spoke. And we would we like I said we would signal boost like the ones that we thought were good that were like really funny. But I think like as people started to see these more and more sophisticated, uh, you know, icing things happen on Bros Icing Bros, we would like people would take their one-upmanship to the next next level. Um, and I think Bros Icing Bros is important because it gave the media a it gave the media something to write about, like, if you will, like it gave them a, like a a target. I hate to say like, uh, because it's like, this is just this goofy, you know, college age, like guy phenomena, but it's not really, there's not really one person to like be the leader of the movement or the figurehead or anything else like that until the bros. I seen bros things started to waterfall. Um, and then, you know, people are able to say like, People are able to like finger point even, if you will, like that, you know, this is like if you hated it, like this is why. Like and I think Smirnoff hated it. Uh, like, <laughs> like this is this is the problem, like here, or like this is why this is awesome. So right. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, and you know, we both work in media and like we've done our fair share of reporting over the years and like it, it, to to go up and find a man on the street who's participating in you know, icing, that's relatively difficult, right? You have to be there at the right time. You have to get them to talk to you. Like, this is not an easy challenge for reporters who have very little time and energy to dedicate to that. Um, Having a blog that's always on and that has an email address attached to it where you can reach out to a single point of contact who is, you know, at the time, undoubtedly, Bros Icing Bros was the arbiter of 
as you said, like the it was the it was the hub of the wheel, uh, the center of the wheel, and all spokes sort of branched off from that as all things icing were concerned. Um, to be able to contact just one central point and and you know uh, tell your readers, you know, well this is this is the authoritative take on icing because it came from the person who runs Bros Icing Bros. That's obviously gonna work better for someone who's reporting for, you know, Fortune Magazine or for the New York Times. And I mentioned those two publications specifically because they were some of the first mainstream publications, no offense to Bro Bible, of course, but mainstream publications to uh, to start picking up on the fact that this was happening. And like, I'm pulling, I pulled up a um, an article on the New York Times ran in their like advertising section, which is, you know, under the business section, they have an advertising, you know, sort of subsection or whatever. Uh, in June, 2010, they have an article that says popular, the headline is popular new drinking game raises question who's icing whom. Right. And so like the classic, like gray lady tone here, you know, view from nowhere, even when it comes to icing, you know? <laughs> but, but they, you know, they had, it, this starts to get traction with, you know, the arbiters, not of niche culture, not of bro culture, but of, of mainstream centrist American culture. I mean, the, the, most of the time, most companies would kill for that type of feature. I mean, as you mentioned, Smirnoff wasn't particularly happy about this and we'll get to that in a moment. But, um, the fact is that icing was, had, had reached escape velocity. It was, it was going on the blogs at that point. Yeah. I think also there was some like, uh, I think there was some like important social proofing that was happening too in the phenomenon by, tell me more about it. By the time it reached this next like phase of, of where, where bro, like the icing phenomenon was going, like, for example, the one that I really remember was uh, when a reader sent to us um, an icing of uh, Dustin Diamond, the late Dustin Diamond, Screech from Saved by the Bell. Um, right. And that po- that picture went very, very viral. Um, and it was, you know, it, I remember it was – it looked like he was – it was in New York City. I feel like it was like one of those outdoor like beer gardens in like Midtown that happened in the like spring – yeah, um, yeah. like and the frying was, frying pan type model. Yeah, 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 like something like that. Like, and it, it, I mean, it was a really, it was a really funny photo because it was Screech getting iced and like, you know, doing the whole like he was on a knee doing it like the proper like thing. Right. So you now have like a cultural personality that everybody knows to be, you know, associated, if, if you will, like with the virality of the phenomena. And um, I think that is when it started to click to people that it wasn't just this like, you know, goofy like college thing. It's starting to get mainstreamed. Um, and that's when media, of course, gets involved. Like, right. And like you mentioned, the New York Times article, uh, it was it happened right in the middle of that velocity. Um, jokingly, I, I, I actually I pulled I was reading last night the old Gawker uh, post about the New York Times article where the the layer to Gawker's coverage on it at the time in 2010 when Gawker is like Pete Gawker, you know, yep, yep. Um, was that, you know, oh, the New York Times jumped on a trend and now the trend is dead. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like once the once the Times arrives, the party's over on ice. Exactly. Was, exactly. And, and that, that would that would turn out to not be true in the slightest. But the sentiment yeah. 
I think speaks to this idea of sort of the the mainstream leap that icing makes right around you know spring to early summer 2010 where it goes from the dorm rooms the 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 fraternities the sports houses of America's college campuses and all of a sudden it's turning up on New York City streets it's turning up in cubicles of of fortune 500 yeah. companies um and and all of a sudden it's uh, it's so mainstream that it feels like it cannot last, right? This is this is this is bound to become uncool. How could it? How could this phenomenon live on once it's been covered by the New York Times, the stuffiest, you know, sort of sort of most establishment outlet in the Western world? Yeah, and, and like people were icy, and like it kind of. It's funny because the timing of that kind of tracks with like people were icing their dads, and then their dads were like. <laughs> Ice going to like golf on Saturday morning and icing their golf group, you know. Right, right, <laughs> so right. like the virality of what icing was as it moves into like June, especially with like because June is like peak time, you know, Father's Day, like people graduate kind of families for graduation, yep. summer, stuff like that. Like people it's just the perfect time of year for like this thing to start to take off and in a way beyond just uh, you know just goofy, like 21 year old dudes. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, uh, I think like this is, we've mostly been talking about the coverage of it. We've mostly been talking about like the blog sort of a- animation around it, mostly from a positive sense. And, and I mostly feel good about icing. I should be clear. Like I, it was not like a big part of my college experience or my, you know, in my early 20s drinking experience, but like, I mostly think it's fine. Like I, I don't really have like any major sort of um, gripes against it, but some people did, and some people saw in it sort of darker aspects of uh, eight dudes hanging around with nothing to do, right? Like that to some people, I think is like, oh, that sounds chill. Like that'd be a lot of fun to other people that maybe like doesn't sound so fun at all. And so I think like icing was weirdly like there was sort of like this dark counter narrative around icing that I don't think was fully untrue. Like, I think there yeah. was some truth to it, some underlying sort of like uh, uh, reality there where like people argued that there was a sort of misogynistic or sexist element to icing um, because, you know, the joke, such as it was, is that Smirnoff Ice is a girly drink or a, it's feminine coded. It's it's for chicks, quote unquote. And therefore, how embarrassing, how humiliating um, to not only have to chug this thing that doesn't taste very good, but chug this thing that makes you, you know, like look uh, unmanly or, you know, like not as right, masculine. Right. right. And so there were, do you remember, like, I remember the backlash. I remember there being sort of some of these, like, you know, again, like, I don't think this was the dominant narrative, but like there was some backlash around it yeah, at the time. I think that's an important, like, thing to consider in the overall, like, cultural context of, like, the early 10s. Because, like, you got to remember, this is, like, like looking back, it was a very unhinged time, you know? Like, it Completely. was, like, yeah. cu- <laughs> like, culturally, it was a unhinged time. I was just going to say, like, people still didn't, like, know you could get fired for social media posts. This was yep. the era of, like, Justine Sacco. Remember that woman who, like, yes. like tweeted, I'm going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, and then, like, turned her phone off, and then, like, she landed in Africa and, like, got fired. <laughs> we had no idea, like, what the norms were around these, like, new media technologies. Because they were being formed at the time. They yeah. were being formed at the time. And it's, look, it was really, truly, like, a Wild Wild West era. And that also is reflected in, like, culture, too. Like, you know, 
love it or hate it, but like Entourage was winning Emmys like at the time, huge, you know, huge like, at the time, yep. and like and and a, a massively like broy, you know, broy show, and that had obviously a lot of like downstream effects into other aspects of like art and culture. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Blue Mountain State and Spike TV and, you know. How to Make it in America, which I would argue was sort of a send up of Entourage, not necessarily yeah. like a descendant of it, but like still was of a piece with that genre of show. Exactly. And we're start So and and on the other side of it, as a culture, we're starting to have these conversations about like, oh, is like is all this macho man or is all this like broiness good? Is it like, you know, is it is it bad? Um, what are the critiques we have around it? And, and, uh, there's kind of this entire thing happening that Smirnoff Ice is a part of, or this cultural conversation happening at the time that Smirnoff Ice is a part of around what, you know, was, I, I think called bro behavior, like at the time, um, and, and kind of dubbed that sort of thing and how that manifested itself in art and, you know, all these other, other things. So like all of those criticisms were really like important to, you know, uh, uh, this time frame, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, because like, that <laughs> totally like now you sort of, it's easy to kind of grasp like, Oh, okay. I see why there would be backlash around that. But like Smirnoff ice, this middling flavored malt beverage that never did anything to anyone. <laughs> it winds up in, in the middle of some very powerful cultural forces over which it has no control. And I think that's why, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Diageo, the parent company of Smirnoff Ice, does basically everything it can in these early years of icing uh, to make it clear that this is not their invention and they uh, have yeah. nothing to say about it because they, they didn't do it. <laughs> they were, I mean, they were mortified, I think, by it. Um, you know, look, like it was 13 years ago, so some of the details are like a little a little fuzzy on, uh, on you know, what the actual Diageo-like component of it looks like. But I yep. remember because we were a small, like, you know, we were a small media business in New York City at the time. Um, like we had, uh, I I personally didn't, but a, a business partner of mine had, um, you know, knew some people at Diageo, and we were just like, oh, this would be like a good like maybe there's like a partnership thing here, like maybe there's something that like we can you know carve <laughs> right, out for right. ourselves yeah. as Pro Bible, like in working with like Smeared Up, and I mean, you know, I remember I remember him telling us because we lived we worked in this little cubicle in soho and like i remember he told us he was like he was like there's no chance they're terrified of like <laughs> all of this like they know that they've lost like control of everything because that's what companies hate the most like companies hate losing control of the narrative around their product sure. you know sure. like and there's so much sensitivity when you're a beverage alcohol company, which obviously Diageo is one of the biggest, um, you know, like this idea of there's a couple third rails uh, when we're talking about uh, Smirnoff ice and icing. One is underage drinking, which is probably the biggest third rail there is in the beverage alcohol industry. And then uh, third rail, the number two is uh, uh, overconsumption, uh, chugging, yep. binge drinking. Yep. Like these are yeah. these are two no-go zones for a beverage yeah. alcohol company. And they are rolled up into one cultural phenomenon that basically anywhere you look, you can find someone doing it uh, in media, in real life, whatever. So this is, this is the waking nightmare for a big diversified multinational beverage alcohol corporation. A hundred percent. And I think that's why 
like when it comes to the story of bros, I seen bros. Um, I don't want to like, I can't, like I said, totally different organization, just observer of it. But like yeah. they, I believe they started to pick up some, some flack, um, on it. I don't know what that looks like officially. I don't know if like Diageo reached out or anything like that. Um, and there was a moment then they reached out to us because they were obviously very viral. They were looking to mon- capitalize, monetize on their virality. They just wanted to get paid, wanted a check, and they created this thing that's impossible to get a check for. They reached, us, <laughs> right. they reached out to us for us to buy it, and we were like, absolutely not. Like, what's what's the bit? Like, what are we buying? <laughs> like, right, there's, right. There's not actually, like, a business here, like, et cetera. Um, and, you know, uh, and then I, I do think they sold it to somebody eventually. I don't know who. Um, but then eventually, you know, it just it kind of it lost momentum, but, uh, or it either it was on their part or the new operator. I don't know. Like, but, but I do think that like, I think some of that backlash did start to downstream itself though, to like, you know, the, the, the middle of, of the phenomenon from a media standpoint. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the course that it ran. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're right about like the company tries to distance itself. And in the New York Times, uh, in June 2010, you know, the company refuses to comment on the record, but says on background, they have nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, this is, this is not something they're involved in at all. They try to make those lines clear. They tell Fortune, uh, the same thing. I think the Fortune article came out in, in late May. So right before mm-hmm. the Times article. Um, you have to remember, and this is another piece of like Smirnoff lore, Smirnoff malt beverage lore, which uh, I consider myself a foremost expert on. <laughs> uh, to, in, in 2006, so about four years prior, in the same era, Smirnoff gets what is effectively one of the first sort of viral commercial hits um with their uh tea party uh music video like the the preppy rap i don't know if you remember oh, that yeah. one yeah so th- wow. i love that commercial i, never, I watch like, all the time i had yeah. never like i had never crystallized that that was like such a big win for basically alcohol marketing going viral <laughs> right and like so they they had that go viral it was a legitimate success in a way that people didn't really even understand at the time this is 2006 this is the early days of youtube um and so people were looking at smirnoff saying well you did that a few years ago and this kind of looks like sort of viral marketing the same deal so people assumed that Oh, this must be like another stunt from Smirnoff, and Smirnoff was like, "Absolutely not, not this one." Like, please, please, no, you know. <laughs> um, but I want to, I want to sort of zoom out a little bit, or maybe pull focus back to here we are in 2013. We're 13 years after sort of the initial um, mainstream wave of icing crashing onto the scene. You know, as we mentioned, it would not go away. There's been sort of ebbs and flows of the practice, but contrary to that projection that you mentioned that that Gawker had made at the time that the New York Times coverage would would make it uncool enough that it would become radioactive and wither, icing has mostly stuck around. Like it's yeah. it's there have been instances where I mean like every five years or so it feels like there will be a post or there will be an article where someone tries to do the history of it or someone sort of revives this practice and whenever one of those articles comes up 
people come out of the woodwork to be like, what are you talking about? Like, I've been doing it this whole time. Like, it never went anywhere. It's like, it's yeah. crazy how much it's stuck around. Yeah, because like, it's, you know, I think, I think it just like, because of all the confluence, 2010, for whatever reason it is, like, I think, I think it just happened in a very like, magical time for a lot of people. Like, and like, you know, whether it's because of these technology factors, whether it's the fact that millennials were like, you know, especially like our age, like yep. were like, were, uh, you know, in the very early days of their career, like after college, kind of living in that afterglow of college, um, a little bit, um, starting to like still kind of in touch though with like, you know, college or basically like in their college social circles in various like ways and stuff like that. And I think it's stuck because it's cultural currency. So like if you're going to a mm. bachelor party of somebody that maybe you don't even know anybody there except for the groom, like everybody's going to know what a nice it is like in that, in right. that like situation, like, and it's a fun thing to inject into all of these various like, social occasions that you know just gives a degree of levity to to it and like it's kind of ironically fun that this thing that we were doing at 21 22 like it can continue into your 30s right, and 40s right. <laughs> and there's so there's like the some of the powerful things that are going on there is like what we would learn in the intervening years from when icing really hit the mainstream it to now is that like nostalgia is going to be just an incredibly powerful sort of motivator for like millennial media consumers. And what's more nostalgic than icing this thing that came about in these, these early sort of halcyon days of web 2.0, right? Like this nostalgia factor is just, I think a major part of what, you know, keeps icing in the discourse long past when other trends of sort of like similar behaviors, uh, you know, would have petered out. Yeah, that's 100% it. And, you know, like I doubt it's like a contributing factor to Spirit Off Ice's like sales by volume or anything like that. But it definitely probably keeps it definitely for me, at least keeps the product like front of mind. You know, it's impossible to not for me to ever think of Spirit Off Ice as anything other than an icing vehicle at this point in time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Impossible. Like, and, and I think the brand eventually comes around to this fact, right? In the later years, so, you know, so five, 10, eight years later, um, Smirnoff Ice realizes like this can't, this is never not going to be a part of this brand's sort of story in the in the US market at least. You know, this is how people understand this product. Let's embrace it, right? Let's let's turn yeah. to it. And so this was also of the era where like in the I'm talking later teens now where brands are starting to like get voicey on Twitter and like the Denny's and like Steakums, you know, accounts are like talking shit to each other. And like this is like there's new license for brands to be yeah. able to have more of a personality and more sort of self-awareness and, and self-deprecation. And so Smirnoff goes ahead and, and produces uh, over the course of several years, I think it was like 2018 or so. Um, they, for their holiday, like promotion or campaign, they create like little gift boxes type of thing that are supposed to look like, you know, electronics or uh, a fish tank or whatever. And then they actually, when you open them up, they're disguised and, and what's actually inside is smearing off ice bottles. And so the brand eventually looks to 
reabsorb this sort of cultural phenomenon and repurpose it in a commercial, you know, sort of uh, context with limited success. I mean, I think they were good stunts and I think they won them a lot of yeah. earned media, free media that they otherwise would have had to pay for. Right. Because like those types of stunts do go viral even well into the teens, um, you know, because people still are sort of are consuming that as sort of low calorie quote unquote snackable content. Um, but they, they try to sort of, if we can't beat them, join them, let's, let's, you know, at least sort of have some fun with this and, and get some benefit off of it ourselves. A hundred percent. Like, and I think like there are downstream effects of like those little things. Like just, I know that for us at Bro Bible, uh, we've written two, like it's time to bring icy back. Like over the last like six years. (laughs) I've seen seen both of the articles. Yeah. They both say the exact same thing too. So (laughs) it's like, I don't know why we did too, but, but it also just goes to show though, that like, you know, like look as, as our, as the demographic gets older, like it, you know, people, that's going to be a thing that people dip into because, uh, I think it just was a part of this like really like magical time, I think, for a lot of people to really crystallize. Even just like, you know, I pulled up a I pulled up a old email where uh that was like a reader submission. And it's just so funny that like the way that it was written, a big thing at the time too, and I'm backtracking here a little bit, but um a big thing at the time too was that there were these parallel forces of like the bros and the hipsters in the world. Like we don't like even really use the idea of what like the hipsters were, but this is like when Williamsburg was kind of popping off as like peak Williamsburg. Uh, There was this idea that, yeah, yeah, Williamsburg versus Murray Hill, like in New York. Um, And I I got this email where it was like, true bros know how to emulate bro haters in their hipster ways while drinking a smeared off ice. A truly bro hatey beverage, <laughs> and it just <laughs> and it was like a picture of these two like guys icing each other at the same time. Um, but but it's funny to like think about how there was this like that just doesn't even exist in the discourse anymore. Like it's also you know basically I mean? <laughs> yeah, like that that sentence is like indecipherable in any other context, right? Like it just like if you pulled that sentence out and like presented it to someone under the age of twenty five, yeah. like their brain would melt. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, (laughs) exactly. It's like, it's like, I've heard these jokes about how, like, uh, about how Gen Z makes fun of millennials for like skinny jeans. And like, it's funny because like, in addition, it's funny because like the skinny jean phenomena, like, was also a part of like the battle between bros back in the day. That's right. And I right. kind of like interwoven itself like into this. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, there's like a greasers versus socias element to it, like from the outside, whatever the gangs were from the outsiders. Like where like there's there's sort of like class connotations of being yep. a bro that are sort of you know hardening at that moment. Yep. Hipsterism is going from sort of a useful subcultural designation to this like empty vessel term that uh, loses all meaning and becomes a cipher for, you know, hipsterism was kind of like in the, in the aughts and 2010 early teens was like kind of how you hear conservatives use like wokeism now, you know, like now it just means like things that you don't like or like alarm you, you know? (laughs) Yep. Yep. Oh, it's a hipster. Like, you just like, and you know, everybody kind of has this mental image of what it is, but nobody really like, 
it means nothing. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, so this, I mean, in, in, in this era, like, that's, you know, at this point, bygone, again, we're talking 13 years, you know, removed from this, Smirnoff Ice sort of stumbles its way into being this um, poignant, you know, cultural touchstone that uh, is is punchline, it's it's nostalgia, you know, uh, reference, it's um, uh, sort of third rail of alcohol use, you know, behavior, whatever, like it's all of it. It's, it's harbinger of the way web 2.0 social media behavior is going to spread, um, and recontextualize, uh, you know, offline practices and turn them into, you know, mimetic behavior that people then reproduce. Like there's all of these things like swirling around this boring ass, Smirnoff Ice flavor yeah. malt beverage. And, and I do think there's an important alcohol industry like use case study that came out of this a couple years later. Um, in, and that's with uh, the rise of Fireball. Um, I think mm. that like I think that like there were some really good kind of oral histories that came out about a year after Fireball sort of started its meteoric like rise or g- very grassroots rise about how that like happened. And, you know, the beverage industry, it seems like as much as everybody might say they were they hated the Smirnoff icing thing, you know, they're obviously were watching. There was the like we said, rise of virality and everything like that. Yep. Um I know that like I remember in some of these early day histories about Fireball, Sazerac was going to The parent company. Sazerac, the parent company of Fireball, was going to that nobody knew anything about at the time, uh, was going to bars at Vanderbilt in uh nashville so obviously like places with a big like party culture and uh that was where they were like seeding the idea of fireball being a like shot for basically like college kids and it was like you know it was pretty classic like oh hey uh drinks in hand style like marketing tactics of like hey do you want a free fireball shot and then everybody like doing it and you know loving it um, in these in these bars, so obviously LDA compliant and everything like that. But like, and then it just it became a phenomenon. Like Fireball as a phenomena kind of did its thing from there without them having to put much emphasis into into it. Besides, uh, you know, just distribution of the product. Yep. Um, and I I think that probably would never happen in the same way if there wasn't a case study out of icing. Does that make Interesting. sense? Interesting. Like, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the ways, you know, or one of the last things I wanted to ask, and this is like a perfect way to sort of cap it off this episode, we've gone the distance here, my friend, but, um, you know, is what you see as the heir apparent? And it sounds like you think that Fireball maybe is one of the results of the icing phenomenon because of the way it demonstrates the power of virality, because of the way it demonstrates consumers willingness to drink something that maybe is perceived as girly or as lesser than or whatever, if it's presented in the right context, if it tastes, you know, right, whatever. Like, I yes. like that. I like that call. Yeah. Because like, I mean, look, like the, the premise of what fireball is, is isn't original, like Goldschlager and uh, like aftershock are basically the same. Yeah, sure, sure. All this. It's all like the same. It all was the same thing. Um, but but that to me was the thing where like some really smart marketers like at Sazerac sat back. They watched the phenomena of like icing unfold 
Um, and they said, how do we replicate this same thing? Um, they landed on the perfect place to do it, like Vanderbilt, the, the Harvard of the SEC or whatever they call it. Um, and and uh, they picked a school where they knew, or, I mean, I say a school, but they picked a, a campus community, I guess, um, where they knew that the bars in that in that area there would be the social proofing would spread from the people at Vanderbilt to all these other friends in other colleges yep. Uh, yep. and everything else like that in a very organic way. Um, it's just social proofing where, you know, someone says, Oh, I tried fireball at like the bar last yep. night. Like, and you know, they tell their friends like in the Northeast further in the South, etc. And, uh, and then it takes off. Like, and I think that is like the, that to me is the most obvious one. I don't think like, and you know, after that, I don't know. I think it's a, you would know better than me um, because of your expertise in the beverage industry. But, you know, I don't know if anything else has really ever replicated that again. Would you say, I mean, maybe seltzer, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, hard seltzer comes on and is popular in, but it's popular in an unironic, like genuinely yeah, like, exactly. people, people are buying like it on it. purpose way, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's no nuance to it. I mean, I think like, to the extent of like similarity, there's kind of an inversion on the Smirnoff Ice joke in 2019 when comedian Trevor Wallace goes viral with the "Ain't No Laws When You're Drinking Claws," you know, yep. uh, uh, YouTube video that he does, um, and that is sort of premised on this idea that White Claw and hard seltzers like it are coded as feminine. But if you like become, you know, if you're macho about it, and if you like sort of you know, play up like how, how, uh, hardcore of a bro you are, then it's like, you're comfortable drinking it. Right. So like right. it's playing on some of the same tropes, but hard seltzer is successful before and wildly successful after this video. It, that's not driving the sort of the consumption in the same way, right? Like that's happening concurrent and there's some cultural sort of, you know, noise around that. And, and certainly the phrase has entered the lexicon, but it's not really the same thing. So I would say on like the liquid basis, there's a clear sort of through line from Smirnoff Ice to uh, to hard seltzer, you know, and other alco pops like it. Um, but in terms of like the cultural phenomenon, I think it's it's relatively lacking um, compared to this like very very culturally rich, media rich um, sort of sort of cloud that Smirnoff ice and icing create around the brand for, for many years. So yeah, no, I yes. like the fireball call, man. I, I think we'll have to have you on uh tap lines again to maybe to talk about fireball and, and it's rise. And it's, that's a, that's a spirit of course, but I don't know if you know this, they're one of the top beer companies in the world because they make a malt version that sells or in the country, excuse me, not the world um, because they, they make a malt version that sells extremely well. <laughs> I had no idea. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. And that's, uh, it all comes back to flavored malt beverages, uh, on this episode of tap lines. Brandon, thank you so much for stopping by my friend and, uh, keep your eye out next time I'm in LA because I'll be coming at you with a room temperature smearing off ice. <laughs> Can't wait. Please, please make it great. <laughs> <laughs> no request taken at this time. All right. See you later. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, 
Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>